Welcome to Conversation 360 Podcasts and this second series of Asia in the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. On Asia and the West, we showcase people whose life, work, and experience shed light on what's taking place between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, and you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. Please note the opinions expressed here are those of the individuals themselves, not intending to reflect those of their company or other organizations in which they're involved. Because if you think about today... 18 billion devices connected to the internet. You know, everything that's happened in the last eight years, and if you think about everything that's happened in the last eight years, from, you know, collaboration voice and email and instant messaging and video, well, the acceleration that's going to happen in the next four years, we will see three times the number of connected devices that we had in the last eight years, in the next four years. So imagine everything that's happened in the next, in the last eight years, tripled and compressed into four years. It's going to be amazing. That was Matthew Smith, a senior Cisco executive who heads market development globally for the Internet of Things. Born in the U.K. and schooled there, Matthew has lived in Asia pretty much ever since then, so he's observed firsthand and participated in the incredible process of change that's taken place. The Hong Kong of Matt's childhood, for example, had a cricket pitch on what is now the most valuable piece of real estate in central Hong Kong. I've known Matt for several years and always find his take on the world, especially technology, informative, provocative, and fresh. He wears his global citizen persona comfortably, a likable man who's at ease, accessible. You can imagine his success at representing a global corporation in conversations with C-suite leaders. In this episode of Asia in the West, you'll hear his perspective on developments since those early days in Hong Kong, leading to the consolidation of Asia's emerging economies into a technology-driven powerhouse that, at least in his view, is outpacing the West. In the midst of all this technology, Matthew underscores his view that it's more important than ever to establish personal relationships. When you think about how things have evolved over time with email going to voice uh, communications, collaborative, teleconferencing, video conferencing, and now we're starting to think about 3D videos and all of these things that are moving forward, but there is still no substitute for that uh, physical interaction because people uh, do the best when they talk to other people. And it's all really, I suppose, it's about you can't become a prisoner of your own experiences. Matthew talks of how our increased ability to connect with one another is facilitating global addressing systems. He refers to the development of the What Three Words, which is a system that will change the way real estate is bought and sold around the world. He also talks of accelerated innovation at the local community level, resulting in mass customization of products and services. We talk about these topics and more, including data security and privacy, China's serious investment in fintech, blockchain, how employers are using algorithms to make hiring decisions based on character analysis rather than resumes, and how pollution and population scale will challenge China's continued growth. We met at Cisco's offices in Hong Kong. So with me today is Matthew Smith, who is Global Head of Market Development for the Internet of Things at Cisco. So welcome to Conversation 360. 
and this Asia and the West series, Matthew. Can I call you Matt? You can call me anything you want. Okay, great. So my first question of you is, when we talk about the conversations taking place between Asia and the West, what does that bring to mind? What does that mean to you? I think really it's change, and more than anything else, the pace of change. I think we've seen uh, the emerging economies and the emerged economies come together again. So for a time, of course, China's economies and India's economies were leading the way prior to European industrialization. Then the West and the emerging economies led the way, and now those have come back together. And so that pace of change is really starting to accelerate. Uh, I think there'll always be bumps in the road, of course. You know, we see things like Brazil. We, th we see things where there's change. But uh, overall, I think the dynamics are moving towards uh, the emerging economies are really starting to outpace the West. In fact, I remember I was invited to the B20, which is part of the G20 summit right. in Seoul back in 2008. And David Cameron came out on the stage, Prime Minister of the UK at the time, uh, to talk to the business leaders and said, you know, there's a wall of debt in the West and there's a wall of money in the East and the UK is open for business. So I think there's that recognition that um, there is a lot of wealth being created, mainly through people and productivity mm. uh, in the East, and the West is now open for business. You only need to look at uh, what Theresa May is saying in the UK today about how they're open for business and looking forward to investment from China. So I think there's been a lot of change over the last 20 years and it's been really quite fascinating. So that suggests, though, when we talk about it, it suggests that what we really need is collaboration, doesn't it? I think collaboration is a huge thing, yes. You know, and I think technology, obviously coming from Cisco, technology underpins that in, in a very, very, uh, I think, growing way. Uh, you know, when I joined Cisco, gosh, in 2000... Uh, a the, lifetime ago. A lifetime ago in technology. Yeah. I mean, we didn't even have wireless. Uh, and that's just something that people don't seem to be able to imagine these days. In fact, when Cisco was born in 1984, there were only 3,000 things connected to the Internet. And see how that's changed. You know, the world went through this tipping point. 2008, the number of connected devices equaled the number of people on the planet. Today, it's about 18 billion connected devices. But I think, more than anything else, that has driven collaboration through Internet telephony, through uh, video, uh, when we first started with video back in 2006, 2007, uh, we had these huge telepresence rooms and they were very expensive and people would come in and talk about the technology. And we noticed uh, that when you brought kids into those rooms, they didn't talk about the technology, they just played. Uh, and now they would play with children from other sides of the world. And now we've started to see, of course... Uh, FaceTime or whatever the latest thing is you can have on your iPhone. You don't need that big room anymore. You don't need with that all big those, room. People yeah. have been some, become so comfortable with video, uh, with collaborative technology, with talking to people on the other side of the world. And I think it's that huge change. But it's also we haven't seen anything yet. Because if you think about today, 18 billion devices connected to the internet, you know, everything that's happened in the last eight years. And if you think about everything that's happened in the last eight years, from you know collaboration, voice, and email, and instant messaging, and video, well, the acceleration that's going to happen in the next four years, we will see three times the number of connected devices that we had in the last eight years, in the next four years. So imagine everything that's happened in the, next, in the last eight years tripled and compressed into four years. It's going to be amazing. I'm exhausted. 
just thinking about it. But, but this suggests an ideal world in which that kind of collaboration is really something to which all people aspire. Uh, tell me about how, how is it different in these two parts of the world in terms of how, how technology is being used? Is the appetite equally intense in both places? I think equally intense. However, I think that the emerging world has a little bit of a lead simply because um, they didn't have a lot of the legacy technology. Mm -hmm. And so you might draw something similar to when the US became the leading power in the world back in, 2005, in, in 1905, is because uh, they didn't have all of the legacy industry that was still depreciating that Europe had at the time. So they were able to build new and become more advanced. And I think this is what you're seeing now in the emerging economies is that they don't have all of the legacy technology. Mm -hmm. And there's also this appetite and this curiosity to try new things. And I think that even is relevant when we start to look at the consumption of technology. Um, I think just in the last year, the US has, was consuming 30% of new technology. It's gone down to 20, where China has gone from 8% to 15%. Now, of course, the overall market has got a lot bigger, but it's just that curiosity and I think that desire to try new things that is going to drive a lot of the acceleration in the emerging economies. So you operate in both parts of the world. Actually, you're operating globally. So you're a perfect person to ask this. How, how well does, do the Chinese understand the West? I think it's, it's changed very, very, uh, since, certainly since my business career with Cisco over the last sort of 17 years, it's changed a lot. And I suppose it's, it's changed in both ways as well. You know, I remember when we were setting up offices in China, we'd have the corporate real estate team come over from the US. They'd grab the first person that spoke English and think, oh, we must trust him or, or her. <laughs> and of course, that sometimes didn't work out. And I think the same with Chinese companies as they started to expand globally. They would find local, leadership, local Chinese leadership who could help them. But now I think just like Cisco has changed and uh, China is changing as well, is that people are more trusting of um, taking the best local talent in the local country where they set up and using that talent to actually generate market access. So there's no longer this desire to own and control everything culturally. Is that true in both directions? I think very much, yes. And I think uh, it's lessons learned more than anything else from uh, looking at and studying different organizations. Certainly at Cisco, you know, we used to have a lot of expatriate management and now we don't. Uh, and I think a lot of the, the mainland Chinese companies, they're expanding very, very quickly. And they're also relying a lot on local management as well in the countries that they work in. That's a big change. The whole, the whole expat concept is really uh, anachronistic, I suppose, in some ways. Certainly, yeah. I think it is because, um, and I think it's mainly the collaborative technologies that are starting to drive that. Because when you can actually speak to people and look at them in the eye and uh, using a video conferencing system from the other side of the world, you can gain that element of trust. You know, we always say the first time you meet somebody, yeah, absolutely should be in person. There's no substitute for meeting somebody in person, shaking their hand, looking them in the eye, having a drink with them, going for dinner with them, learning about them. But the second time, of course, you can meet them virtually uh, because you've established that relationship and, and then you can start to build on that relationship. I, I couldn't agree more with this. You know, I, for years I've been saying that face-to-face -face conversation has become the new luxury and I've really shifted my thinking to it's become the new requirement. 
that that if you really want to take advantage of technology, you got to you got to make that effort to make that connection, even if it's virtual, but somehow having a sense of physical presence. And then after that, you can go crazy using technology of any kind. Um, no, I couldn't agree more. You know. Um, when you think about how things have evolved over time with email going to voice uh, communications, collaborative, teleconferencing, video conferencing, and now we're starting to think about 3D videos and all of these things that are moving forward, but there is still no substitute for that uh, physical interaction because people uh, do the best when they talk to other people. And it's all of, really, I suppose, it's about you can't become a prisoner of your own experiences. Uh, oh, that's a good one. And I think really that if you don't get out there and explore, if you just explore from the comfort of your desk on video, uh, you miss the cultural interaction. Uh, you miss the nuances. You miss the uh, how it is like out in the street, uh, what people are talking about. You know, I'm very lucky having a global team that I've been to a lot of countries around the world, experienced a lot of the cultures. And then usually Tuesday is my big day to catch up with the team because the U.S. are back at work and everybody's around. And I can run around the world uh, talking to the team on video, one-on-one uh, -on -one and finding out new things, working out what's happening in the local arena. And that is a good element of exploring. But I think being there, there's no substitute for being there. I love that. You don't want to be a prisoner of your own experience. I think that's you know true in life in general. Uh, if you live in a small world, you will, uh, you will only be able to give advice about experiences in that small world. So the, the sort of the broader you spread your knowledge, you spread your experiences, you spread your communication. And I think that's where collaboration technologies have become so interesting. Because if you can't afford to travel, you can at least travel virtually now. So it's the next best thing, but you can talk to people around the world, you can ask them questions. Something you were never able to do before. You can, you can look people in the eye, uh, and you can gain a lot from just seeing people. Uh, we always say now that when we're having a video conference and somebody just dials into the voice element of that, they're really the poor person on the conference because uh, if you can't see people, you tend to sort of relegate them into second place. They're the ones who are checking their email. This is very true as well, yes. <laughs> So, what about this recent slowdown in China? How has that ha, has that had an impact on your business, and what's the what's the relevant importance of that? I think uh, China is really starting to um, consolidate, because I think when you talk about slowdown from eight or nine percent to six or seven percent, and then you look at how the rest of the world is growing, and then of course it's the it's the law of large numbers as well. Uh, so when you think how much the Chinese economy has grown over the last 20 years, uh, at some point it has to slow down uh, because it can't keep doubling in size every five or six years. Uh, and, and so, you know, you see that with companies, you see that with everything else. You get to this certain point and then the focus becomes on different things like pollution, climate, all of these different things now that uh, the government are trying to get a, a grip on. So I think you can't necessarily have that huge explosion of growth continuing forever and ever. Is that understood by individuals in China in, in your estimation? Some of them, for example, millennials, have had no other experience except very, very fast growth. Things have been fantastic. Now some of them who are graduating from colleges are having trouble finding jobs. Is that is that going to cause any kind of an issue? I don't think that's ever understood in life, to be honest. 
you know, when, when you're new mm. into the workplace, no matter where you're living or working, if you, you come into this element of growth, growth and growth. I remember growing up in the 80s back in the UK when everything was like, go, go, go. And it was, but I also remember the 70s when there were strikes and uh, huge rubbish piles at the side of the road because uh, everybody was on strike and there was huge unemployment. But, so, but in China, they've never seen the strikes or unemployment. So for, for 30 year olds. And I think, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think it's, it's going to be a, a shock to people that everything isn't, you know, butterflies and roses everywhere, is that, you know, economies do go through cycles. Uh, it can't all be economic stimulus from the government to keep things going. It has to be well-run businesses. Uh, but then, of course, China is really pushing now towards developing its own internal economy, much as the U.S. did back in the 50s, the post-war area, where people came out of war, industrialized, used all of that productivity to start to drive wealth within its own economy. And it's been very self-sustaining for the U.S., I think China is looking to that as a model uh, to be able to have it, its own industries, its own consumption, uh, and start to drive that type of economy. And that takes time. But, uh, uh, you know, I still think that 6 or 7% growth is nothing it's to huge. be... It's huge. Yeah. And, compare, and when you think about the size of the economy, the second largest economy in the world growing at that rate, um, I still think there's great things to happen over the next 10 years. Because if you grow at 6% for eight years, you're effectively doubling your economy. Yeah, no kidding. And, and so many people. So what does this mean ultimately? Our, um, your sounds like you're highly bullish about where China is going, about its future. I think in general, yes. I think um, the changes we're starting to see in technology and the opportunities, the, the global economy, I think, has got a great opportunity with this digitization to accelerate. When you think about some of these technologies like blockchain, and the ability now to actually create a distributed ledger which defines ownership. And you think things like property rights as an example. There's a, there's a new thing called what three words, which uh, gives you three words which can give you three trillion locations around the world. So effectively it divides the world into three meter by three meter blocks using three simple words to define that. So if you combine the two together... Wow. Are you saying what three words? W-H-A-T? Three, three words? words. Okay, it's I don't a know global addressing this. system. Wow. Okay. And so when you combine something like that, so you can actually define a space, and then you can actually then define an ownership with a blockchain with a distributed ledger. Think about what happened in Europe when property rights in the 16 and 1700s were unlocked in the Netherlands and copied in the UK, and how that created economic wealth. Because... When you can own a property and you can define that ownership and prove that ownership, it allows you to take loans out, it allows you to do different things. And so over the next five to ten years, as we start to see these technologies mature, I think we're going to see this acceleration in growth in the global economy simply because of this ability to unlock previously hidden wealth. It certainly says something about the real estate industry and all those brokers who've been running around with the information that now is going to be available to everybody. It's going to be a very flat industry, <laughs> I have to say. I wouldn't want to be a, a real estate agent in 15 years' time. So let's talk about innovation, because all of this seems to be driven by that. And I know some people in the West certainly see the, see the West as the innovative machine, and that, the, that Asia and the rest are you know, somewhere else on the map. That's indeed not the case, is it? That's truly not the case. In fact, you know, when we start to think about how um, Cisco as a company have, have grown, I mean, we set up our second head office in India, not for the specific reason 
that um, we needed to be on the other side of the world, but we, need, we needed to find talent because uh, there was a shortage of talent in the Bay Area. But also, um, the world has become much more customized now. And we're, we're starting to come into an era of mass customization. And what do you mean by that? Because uh, people can see all of these different things around the world, but they also want them localized, how they want them. They don't have to, you, don't, you can't sell what you have anymore. You have to actually make what the customers want. And therefore, you can't design a product in the US, in the Bay Area, for a village in India. You can, but it's probably not going to be the right product. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same goes everywhere, is that you have to have a lot of local innovation. You can have global trends, of course, but they have to be innovated locally. Uh, you have to look at the local way people consume locally. That's why we get sachets of shampoo in India for one hair wash. You know, you wouldn't ever dream of buying that in the U.S., uh, and so you start to see a lot of these local innovations, I think, uh, and that's driven by people uh, who start to look at technology and how it can be employed in their local communities. It's how we work with cities as well. So when we go to a city, we can bring in technologies such as wireless and low-powered Wi-Fi networks, but then we start to have to think about how we would set up innovation centers locally, how we would partner with local universities, because we can't come in and define a city's problem as being uh, a blanket problem across the world. Of course, you have traffic and you have pollution and all of those other things, but every city has its own character and every country has its own character. And so you'll have to innovate locally to actually meet the needs of that character. So thinking again of China, it uh, it appeared for a while at least that people would say, well, you know, they have an educational system that's based on rote learning, that doesn't foster innovation, but hello, they seem to be highly innovative. So was that just a ruse? I mean, that really turned out not to be true. Where is all this innovation coming from in China, for example? We do quite a lot of work with universities in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, we just recently had a hackathon with AIA. AIA, the largest insurance company in Asia, I think second largest right. in the world mm-hmm. by market cap. And uh, we actually had a contest with them. We invited universities from China, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology hosted it. Uh, and it was on aging population. Uh, because obviously that's going oh, to be a, a huge issue, yeah. specifically for North Asia, just because of the volumes of people. And the one-child rule, which made things really difficult. Yeah. And so now, of course, we find young people solving, solving for older people's problems. And some of the ideas that came out of these universities were amazing. And these weren't necessarily the first-tier universities. These were universities from all around China that participated in this. And I suppose it was also very telling that Um, It's the way people look for talent these days as well. I think it was a couple of years ago now that L'Oreal, the cosmetics slash, uh, I suppose you would call them uh, almost a chemical company for want of a better word, but uh, they were looking for talent in China. And instead of just doing the usual thing, which happens all over the world, is where you just go to the best universities Mm -hmm. and hire the people with the best grades, they actually had an app for people to apply. And then they used data analytics on that app to see the types of character that were applying. You just had to answer these questions. You didn't have to send in your resume. And they wanted disruptive personalities who thought differently. And they ended up hiring their person, you know, I think a young Chinese girl from a second-tier university who they would never have found. And so technology has flattened also that recruiting uh, arena at the same time. That's so interesting because I remember a long time ago, someone that I thought was pretty smart talking about recruiting and saying hire for ambition, train for skill. You know, find the people who are really hungry, who have an appetite, who are smart, 
and then train them in how to do whatever it is you're going to do because it's going to change anyway. I couldn't be a, a bigger supporter of that idea. Simply, you know, my hiring criteria when I hire people into Cisco, they have to be bright and they have to be keen and aggressive. Not aggressive in a, uh, a horrible way, but aggressive to get things done, aggressive to drive change, uh, to run around and to learn new things. Because even technology, technology changes every 12 to 18 months these days. So hiring people for what they knew um, is great, but there's that tendency to say, well, this is the ideal person for the job. They've done all of these things before, but what difference are they going to bring? What disruption are they going to bring? Mm -hmm. So sometimes injecting people into your organization who don't necessarily have the skill sets you want, but who are highly intelligent, uh, have that mode in their mind to explore. And I think that's probably the most important thing to explore new things, to meet new people, to stick their hand out and say, this is me, I don't know what I'm doing, but uh, please you know, let, tell me what you're doing and start to generate new ideas and generate new thinking. That type of disruption, I think, is going to be essential for business as we move forward. So maybe it's, maybe it's shifted slightly to hire for disruption and, and, and train for skill. Do you find that there is that same kind of appetite in young people, young re recruitees in the West? I think so. You know, um, I think, uh, I mean, I've just hired a couple of uh, business analysts straight out of university in the US. And uh, amazing the type of, you know, aggressive, fast paced thought process, who uh, obviously very book smart and not particularly street smart, but they learn very, very quickly and want to change in different ways. But I also think it's a balance. You can't suddenly say, well, let's throw out everybody in uh, you know, in the later stages of their career and hire bunches of young people. You have to have this balance across the organization because... Need some, a little experience, yeah, need a little wisdom. Sometimes when you go in and talk to customers about changing their business, they want somebody with a little bit of gray hair who's actually seen some of these economic cycles, as you mentioned, who's actually seen uh, problems in economies, who's seen problems in companies, uh, and then can actually speak from a much broader range. And, and has also seen lots of things around the world at the same time, you know, has experiences of different, different cultures. Now, of course, you need the early and career people to get that experience. And so I think it's very important to, as soon as you bring these people in, is rotate them around organizations and rotate them around countries as quickly as possible. Geographically as well, yeah. To, to, to make, because they're sponges and they absorb all of this information mm -hmm. and then they come back thinking about it in a different way than you would. Uh, and I think that is the, those are the insights that I really, uh, really want out of the early in career people is that to give them a lot of experience and a lot of exposure and then to see how they bring output from that because of how they were brought up in a different digital environment. So your, your global perspective is fascinating because it really, it really, really drives everything you, you bring into your conversation. And it's important, certainly with this second largest economy, potentially the greatest economy, China, um, to look back. It's clear you're optimistic. Where will the challenges be? What are the things that could mess this up in the case of China? Specifically? I think China pollution is a big challenge, mm -hmm. uh, simply because it's very difficult to recruit people to work in extremely polluted cities. I mean, you think about the UK, uh, the great smog of 1952 in December, 12,000 people died in three days. 100,000 people hospitalized. You know, if you get those types of weather conditions and the smog in some of these Chinese mm -hmm. cities, you could get environmental disasters. 
So I think that is something that the Chinese government is striving to change. You know, hence the, the drive for electric cars, electrification, all of these different things. Because in any emerging economy, of course, to grow fast, <clears throat> you have to drive hard. And that means you're going to have to burn a lot of fuel, burn a lot of coal. And I think there, there has to be a change in that. Otherwise, people simply won't, will choose not to work in those cities. Uh, or you will get long-term health problems, which will be a huge drain on the economy. Well, in fact, Beijing, where it seems to be really so serious, that's where heads of government live and work, right? So what other problems? Um, I think it's just a problem like anything else of scale in China because it's such a large country with so many people. Similar to India, of course, it's, it's, dif it's difficult to centrally control those types of things. Because I believe that you know, China has amazing laws, but then, of course, interpretation is done locally. And so I think more consistency in interpretation of law. Uh, Enforcement in, on any level. Yeah, but again, you know, there are, I remember we used to look at things like anti-counterfeit in uh, China and we'd, we'd be, you know, jumping up and down that some of our products have been counterfeited and the police would be there, but then they would run to a different area because people were counterfeiting milk powder. Uh, mm -hmm. and babies were dying and you've got to look at the priorities of a government is that you're going to put human life before some of these things and so it's a big it's a very very big country and you know just like any big country has big problems has that whole intellectual property uh fear been reduced somewhat because the chinese are patenting their own stuff i think now? very much so yeah. yes uh, very much so you know it's uh i think from the perspective of, I mean, the law has always been great and the enforcement has improved and, and it's just been a matter of coming to terms with everything else. I don't think there's any, ever been any lack of desire of, on the government side to enforce intellectual property laws. But, it would be, but now, of course, you know, it, it's the um, volume of the problems that used to be have certainly decreased. That's so interesting because it was only just a few years ago that companies would complain to me about that being such a huge issue there. Yeah, I mean, I don't deal with that as much as I used to. I used to look at brand protection uh, with, from Cisco's perspective uh, back in the sort of early 2000s. <laughs> and then, of course, there were lots of problems globally then. Yeah. You know, but now, of course, things have quietened down a little bit. So I think, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of it is uh, due to enforcement, but enforcement more than anything else and collaboration. What about privacy issues? You know, in the West, we're so, we, we seem to publicize ourselves all over the place with pictures and things that we put on the web that we probably shouldn't, and yet we're so concerned that people are getting hold of our data. Is that a concern here? I think privacy is going to be a huge issue. You do? Uh, and, and one of the most critical issues, security and privacy around the world, I think there was some metric that came out that 60% of companies put on hold a digital project in the last 12 months because of concerns about security or privacy. Really? Um, uh, and you think about some of the things that we've seen. You know, the head of the CEO of Target a few years ago lost his job mm -hmm. because uh, somebody hacked into his systems through the air conditioning systems. Uh, and so that obviously was a huge problem. And I think we're going to start to see that more and more of these concerns around security. You look at some of the laws that the EU has drafted, probably some of the most strict in the world around data security and data privacy. So fines of up to 20 million euros, but more importantly, 4% of global turnover for oh, wow. misuse of uh, or you know, disregard of people's personal information. And so companies are now, I think, facing a lot of regulation around privacy and security. And I think 
again, uh, this has got to be a major focus. It's a board level discussion now in all companies. So that suggests that it's, it's actually at the board level, as you say, but there are some places where individuals may for the first time start thinking about their own privacy that hadn't even thought about it before because they were pretty used to having a big brother watching them in some way. Well, it's interesting because I think people of certainly my age uh, have a lot more concerns about what they throw out there than people who uh, of the millennial generation. But I think there's just a different viewpoint because... Uh, it's almost like sharing your location when you turn on your phone. Um, if it's going to give me something more than I'm giving away, then I'm going to do it. It's transactional. It's very transactional. Yeah. I think that's going to be really what privacy is in the future. It's going to be very transactional. I'm prepared to give up a certain amount of my privacy in order to get better services, in order to get better things that are tailored towards me. However, uh, I'm going to be very upset if uh, that balance and the pendulum swings the other way. So, you know, just like we saw, you know, accounting and fraud scandals back in the sort of late seven, late 1990s, etc., we'll probably see a lot more data scandals as we move forward. Mm. And then people, legislation will sort of tip in that area to, to try and protect the individual. Interesting. So what other issues are there that you think are key that we, sh that we haven't mentioned yet the, 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 in the sense of Asia in the West, specifically China in the West. What other things come to mind? I think it's just the opportunity more than issues. I think just this huge acceleration. Uh, when I look at things like financial technologies, China is a huge investor in fintech, as yes. they call it. Mm -hmm. And I think the ability uh, to actually drive new business models, new ways of doing things, I think that's what's going to really um, drive change in the world. And we're going to see it happen very, very quickly over the next three or four years. How long have you been living in Hong Kong? I've lived in Hong Kong for a total of 30 years. Uh, I grew up here you as a... You came when you were two years old. I, I, I went when I was six months old, in fact. My parents <laughs> were, were living in Hong Kong. I was born when they were away back in the UK. But I grew up here and went back to UK for my secondary education and my first job. Then came back again, gosh, in 1991. Uh, a couple of years in India, a couple of years in Saudi Arabia. But yeah, Hong Kong's been very much my home. And the change that you've seen over that time, that's a brief period of time, really, for the kind of amazing... And I think that's indicative of the change in general. I remember when Jardine House, which is this mm -hmm. uh, uh, huge building with round windows, and that was the tallest building in Southeast Asia, and we just used to drive past that as kids, and we'd be, wow. Uh, and I also remember a cricket pitch in the middle of Hong Kong, uh, right next to where the Mandarin Hotel is, which obviously was probably one of some of the most valuable, valuable real estate. Real estate yeah. And that, that moved. And so, yeah, lots and lots of change. Well, this has been thrilling. I think this is a good place to stop. Thank you so much, Matt, for sharing your perspectives on Asia and the West. It, uh, I'd love to continue this at some point. Thank Thanks. you very much, Susan. time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. 
There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast. That's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast. And my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.